Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Dr. John Hammond. I'm wondering uh, if we could go back to the slide in which you introduced me and my... Oh, there we are. Keep it like that. I've been laughing at this for the last half hour. Baron is very efficient and I rang him on Monday night just to confirm and he wanted the topic. I said, I'll send you an email. The topic is the boy in brackets with a bracket on each end. But you've taken it literally and you've got the boy in brackets. But actually the title is The Boy in Brackets. His story in the Bible is in brackets. Why is it in brackets? His story is so unusual, so unfortunate, so tragic, so miraculous, so full of grace that for some reason in the book of 2 Samuel, in a little paragraph of a couple of verses, they put his, a, a, a precy of his life and put it in brackets. So we've got the boy in brackets. Well done, you are very efficient. He, uh, I notice you mentioned my, my grandsons who live just around the corner. We, have, we live on a tiny little lake and uh, little Grady and I were out looking for pirates in our canoe. And uh, he's nearly four and uh, my other grandson is nearly six, and I've got two granddaughters, and I love my grandchildren. I love seeing them growing up. They are so happy and secure in their environment. They think they have two homes. There's mum and dad's place, and there's nanny and grandpa's house, and they come and go as they see fit, and I hope that uh, continues until they've got teenagers who want to have a party. Uh, but that's a long time in the future. This little boy, he was loved. He was very secure. His grandfather was king. And he had a noble name given to him. Mirab Baal, opponent of Baal. A fighting, brave name. The names in those days were meant to have attributes. But it all came to an end when they had a battle at Beth Shan and uh, the Philistines not only killed his father, but they killed his grandfather. The two heirs to the throne, you know, this week we've had a bit of a risk here in Australia. We've had two future monarchs in the country. And uh, I'm amazed that our country is still safe enough where two future monarchs can safely intermingle in crowds. You try doing that in the United States. And uh, this news quickly got back to the palace because they knew what was going to happen next. First of all, they'd taken Saul and Jonathan and they nailed their bodies naked to the walls, the city gates of Bethshan. I have visited the spot and very thoughtful as I looked at the area there because they knew that the 
Harag was about to take place. And Baron, if my pronunciation is wrong, you have permission to correct me from wherever you are. The Harag is what used to happen when a king was suddenly replaced and they would kill every member of the family. In fact, it even happens here in Australia. This was from the, uh, goes better if I turn it on. This was in the newspaper, the Daily Telegraph on Thursday this week. Off with their heads. First order of business is to sack public servant mandarins. Well, it was a figure of speech. They weren't actually off with their heads. But uh, you go to North Korea and uh, oh, what's, what's his name? In Car Park or something like that. Yeah. Uh, he has slowly uh, eliminated anyone, whether it be uncle, cousin, mother or anybody who's going to stand in the way of his regime. And this was the practice way back then, the Harag. And in the panic, his nursemaid gathered up in her arms this little boy who was only five years of age, Mereb Baal, and ran with him. And as she was ran, running, she fell. And uh, I suspect it must have been down a flight of stairs because this little boy was flung out of her arms and at five you got good enough balance to twist in the air to try and land on your feet. But he must have fallen a long way because he landed on his feet and they were shattered. No orthopedic surgeon in those days. And the Bible tells us that his feet were broken. He never ever walked again. And they fled. His name was changed. His name was changed to the son of shame. He was so humbled, so embarrassed by what had happened in that change in his life. And he became known by the name of Mephibosheth. And he fled or was carried to a out-of-town, outback place so hopeless, Lodabar, its meaning is no nothing. At least when people ask me, where were you born? I can say with some pride, I was born in Sydney. If you ask me specifically, I'm not so proud to say that I was born in a woman's hospital, but I was in Paddington. But to be asked, what is your hometown? And you say, uh, I live in a place called No Nothing. Uh, it a bit embarrassing. I was in uh, Bangalore uh, just before I spoke to you last time. And uh, I went to a home, which for me is an honour for the Indians to take me into their home for a meal. And I heard some scampering coming up the steps. We were on about the fifth floor of a, of a building in the city of Bangalore. And in came the dog man of Bangalore. This man, is that is the way he walks. He has done that all his life. And I spent quite some time talking to him. And he says, wherever he goes, people say, dog. 
dog, he says, is very hard to be respected, very hard to hold your head with pride when you are known as the dog man of Bangalore. And uh, this poor boy, Mephibosheth, lived as an outcast in somebody else's home by their charity for 20 years. He did get married, he had a son. And he was in constant fear of his life because he knew that if it was discovered that he was alive, he would be subject to the harag. This is also in India. Uh, I have spent enough time on crutches in my life from a motorbike accident to know that even on crutches, uh, it is humiliating. You're not as fast. People treat you differently. But you imagine living a life like that. It would be terrible. And one day he would have heard a knock at the door and loud voices and his name being called. And he realized that Ziba had returned. Now Ziba had been a servant of his grandfather. And Ziba arrived in the door and said in a loud and not terribly friendly voice because he had lived on the land that should have been given to Mephibosheth. He said, the king wants to see Mephibosheth and we go right now. And Mephibosheth went out of that house thinking he was probably being taken to die. He took a risk. He took his little baby son with him probably to try and, and melt the king's heart. He heard that the king was a gracious person. He'd also heard in the gossip that had just come through the little town of nowhere that seven other final members of the, king's, the old king's family had just been publicly hung and their bodies displayed. He was now the last surviving relative of the previous king. And he was convinced that he was going to his death. How did he get there? Well, my wife and I came down on the train this morning. It was quite comfortable, thank you. He would have been incapable of walking. He was probably because there was a military escort dumped on the floor of a chariot, which had no springs, little foam rubber, he would have been a very sore cripple by the time he got back to Jerusalem. Dumped out and told he is to go in and see the king. How would he be feeling? He would be feeling that this was perhaps the last day of his life. Well, that is Lodabar. No nowhere. No nothing. It is on the east side of the Jordan. You're not really tempted to plant a vineyard there. And when he arrived in the presence of the king, he cowered. And the first words he heard were his name, Mephibosheth. And then the words, don't be fearful. And Mephibosheth bowed low and he said, why, your majesty, should you take notice of me? I am nothing but a dead dog. 
There is nothing more execrable in the Bible than a dead dog. And if you see a dead dog, and I've seen many of them, you either pull them off the road or you do a detour. They're useless. And when you see a dead dog in a place like Fiji, where I used to live, it's usually died out of sheer starvation. He just said, I'm a dead dog. What did David say? I'm going to adopt you. You are going to eat at my table. Now, we've lost the concept of eating at tables. I won't ask for a show of hands because it could be very embarrassing as to how many of us have our evening meals around a table. Or we're doing it in front of the altar. You know that square thing that sits in the corner? And we've pretty well forgotten it. And when we're not eating like that with food on our laps, we are uh, going to uh, KFC or McDonald's or whatever. And we're in a fast food society, but the sitting down for a meal is a formal occasion and with the king. Uh, I went to have a meal in the, the Grand Banqueting Hall at uh, Parliament House and the Prime Minister was there. And uh, they didn't have one long banquet table. They had about 50 smaller tables, each seating a dozen people. And you were ranked, and everybody knew it, by how close you were to the official table. Well, I must have been very important at that stage because I was uh, within touching distance. I was the next table to the official table. Uh, and it wasn't because of my good looks, it was because of the role I was uh, as a head of a school system at that point in time. And uh, the less important you were, the further out the back you were. So if you go to a meal in, in uh, Parliament House, just note where you're sitting. And uh, the very unimportant uh, were being tripped over by the waiters as they came out. Now, I'm not seeing that terribly clearly. Can we just uh, kill the, uh, the house lights? Yeah, someone's tried to imagine what the king's table was like. Yeah, now we've got a double problem. I can still, still see my notes. So. Now, Ziba, as Mephibosheth came off his knees and was lifted up, he would have been sat down. Ziba was told he had done so well out of the property he had retained as being Saul's servant. He must have been clever because he was still under the employ of David. He had 15 sons and 20 servants. And as Mephibosheth is picked up and sat down, David turns to him and says, Ziba, uh, he's getting all his land back and you thought it was yours, uh, but I also need to tell you he can't work the land. You and your sons are going to work that land and you will grow food to give him money because he is now my son. And four times in the book of Samuel, David says to him, you will always eat at my table. There will be no exceptions. You know what it was like when you were kids and you had important visitors coming? You were fed out in the kitchen first. Particularly me because my table manners were disgraceful. But Mephibosheth was told by David, because you are my son, you are now part of the royal family. 
There will never be an occasion when you are not sitting at my table. Let's imagine a family meal. Uh, when does a king come in, first or last? I've never seen the queen arrive at a... I've never been to a banquet with the queen. I've never seen the queen come to a banquet where she arrives first and everybody else comes in. I do know that when she boards a commercial aircraft, everybody is on that plane for at least an hour and a half before she comes on. And she hasn't got a seat next to me in row uh, 453X. She's up the front, the whole of first class. And so David would come in last. Who would come in first? Well, it might have been Ammon, crafty, clever, smug, scheming. Then comes Tamar, the beautiful daughter, wearing a lovely robe. Well, the Bible tells us she had one. Solomon, precocious and brilliant. Absalom, overflowing with charm, good looks and conceit. Joab, muscular, bronzed of military bearing. And in shuffles on crutches, Mephibosheth. But he was there for every meal. Some meals are really grand occasions. Can you see me in that? Let me point you out where I am. Uh, nah, wrong picture. <laughs> I've never been to a banquet like that. Every person there will be feeling absolutely smug with it. I've arrived. Look at me. I don't know where that was. I found it on the internet. <laughs> but it is a very, very grand occasion. And I would imagine that the closer you get to the center, the more important you must be. Just try and imagine the, the, the glory of that occasion. And here was the man who cowered at the feet of the king, saying, I am nothing but a dead dog. Did Mephibosheth understand grace? I don't mean, bless the Lord for the food that we are about to receive, grace. Did he understand what true grace is all about? Do you and I? We are told that the story of Mephibosheth is the finest illustration of grace in the Old Testament. For a start, there are some amazing parallels. His fall was caused by another person. He was dropped. Our fall was not caused by us. It was caused by our original parents. It was their sin. And every human being ever born since then has been born in a state of crippled paralysis. How the people of other worlds must look at us and be revolted by what they see. Poor, poor cripples. He was saved by a covenant that was made between David and his father Jonathan before he was even born. And when 
Lucifer caused Adam and Eve to sin, he believed at that point that he had us trapped forever. We were his property. But we're told that Christ the Father, the, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they met in conclave and they made a covenant. And that covenant was to be repeated verbally to Abraham and again to the, the prophets and the patriarchs. And that was, we have found a way to save the human race, but it will be a terrible price to pay. And that covenant was made before you and I were ever born. And this covenant was made between David and his friend Jonathan, the son of a king, before Mephibosheth was ever born. He didn't seek salvation. He was just so hopeless in his sin, so crippled in his lifestyle, it was the king who sought him out. It was the king who one day was sitting on his throne and reflecting, and he thought, I wonder if there are any relatives of Jonathan still alive. And when he asked, I imagine the answer was, probably took a while, they said, well, finally, they looked, there was a boy who fell on his feet and was crippled 20 years ago. We think he may still be alive. And he lives in the town of Know Nothing on the other side of the Jordan in the desert. That's when he said, go and get him. They said, I will repay kindness and I will honour the covenant. Did Mephibosheth understand grace? Well, we're all crippled. And we can't run. We can't save ourselves. There is nothing that a human being can do to save themselves. It's surprising how many people in the world who don't know and don't care. And that, folks, is really why we are here worshipping in the centre of the city. My wife and I caught the ferry. We didn't know that it was about two or three kilometres away that way. And we walked our way through the crowds. And the crowds all seemed to be walking in a different direction. And I think to myself, how many of you understand grace? How many of you know what it is like to be saved? And why does God use human beings? Because... Every time he uses a human being to seek out another sinner, it is a rebuke to Satan and all these lost people. And I think that this concept of fountain in the city is so beautiful because we come and worship among the people. You just wish they could have all done a U-turn and really packed this place out. Well, we can do nothing to save ourselves. Grace is unmerited, undeserved favour from God. But you know, Mephibosheth was never healed. Even though he became a son of the king, even though he ate every meal after that, in the presence of the king, he still had the reminder of his sin. The first reminder he'll have will be on the resurrection morning when he will spring up, possibly a little bit higher than the rest of us. My father-in-law is buried at the uh, uh, Avondale Cemetery and uh, my wife chose the words for his tombstone. He was 
a cripple for many years. And uh, when uh, Sue met me at college, and uh, she, we became engaged, and her, fa her, her father discovered that my father was a hip replacement surgeon. Now, have you ever tried to make a private appointment uh, to have your hip replaced by an orthopedic surgeon? We're talking about years. Well, not my father-in-law. He just rocked up. I'll come so you can do my hip. Well, Dad did both of his hips, and my father-in-law, Albert Clark, he actually walked my, my wife down the aisle without sticks. But the words on his grave that Sue chose were, uh, you better help me there, what are they? Well, there you go. Mephibosheth will leap just a little bit higher than the rest of us. And like Mephibosheth, our land will be returned to us. And like Mephibosheth, we will eat at the royal table. And like Mephibosheth, we'll be sons of the king. I want you to meet somebody. Um, how many people here have flown to New York or into New York? Yeah, quite a few. You've got two choices. Well, the airline does, actually. Uh, you either fly into LaGuardia or the John F. Kennedy Airport. And uh, this is Fiorelli LaGuardia. Five foot nothing, pudgy, outspoken, vain, fearless, and probably the greatest mayor in the history of American politics. He was remarkable. He was the man, five foot nothing, by the way. His biography will try and tell you that he was five foot two. That's when he was wearing platform soles. He was a real character. He was the man that amused himself in the evenings by going out and riding the fire trucks. And one freezing cold night in January, he went into a courthouse, a court of petty sessions. He was a qualified judge. And he walked in and the judge saw him. There were 70 people in the courtroom. Most of them were people up on charges, petty charges. And they all recognized the mayor. And he went in and he whispered to the judge, knock off, you can go home now, I'll look after the rest of the cases. So he climbed up, probably sat on about four telephone directories and proceeded to dispense justice. Well, the first case was a grandmother, poor, disheveled, shivering in the cold, hauled before the court because she had stolen a loaf of bread. And LaGuardia said to her, what are you here for? And the prosecutor said she stole a loaf of bread. And uh, he said, well, who, who, who's laying the charges? And up jumped the shopkeeper. He said, look, this is a bad neighbourhood. She's done the wrong thing. She's stolen from my shop. She needs to be punished. We need to make an example of her for the rest of the city. The guardian had no choice. He had to deal with the case. So he took out $10 and said, 
There you are. I paid for your fine. And the rest of the court looked very interested. And he said, all right, and the rest of you, I'm going to pass the hat around and you're all being fined 50 cents. For living in a city where a thing like this happened, that a starving grandmother who's trying to find food for her starving grandchildren because the children's mother has uh, father has cleared off and left them, <coughs> I'm finding you all 50 cents. He collected $47.50. The newspaper reported the next day that of the 70 people in the court, 69 stood up and cheered. The only one who didn't was the shopkeeper. That is what grace is all about. Now, let's come back to the banqueting scene. Okay, whereabouts are you? We're all invited. Where do you see yourself? Oh, I'd be quite happy. The food's of good quality right down there, but if I want to make a mark, I think I need to get up near the middle there. Are we Absalom? Are we Solomon? Are we Amnon? Are we Tamar? If you and I are not Mephibosheth, then we've missed the whole point of what grace is about. He sat in his place ever conscious. He was only there because of grace. You and I have absolutely no right to the kingdom of heaven. And you can blame everybody. You can blame our parents. As I watched my children growing up and I saw them with my characteristics, I felt guilty. I can see my characteristics that I came from, got from my parents and grandparents. Who do we blame? You may have heard Adam blame the snake. The snake... Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the snake, and the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> the fact is, we were dropped into sin. We smashed our feet. We became crippled. And we have no right to the kingdom of heaven. If you stay in your bar you will know nothing and you choose to stay there when the king has personally invited you by paying the price of death to eat at his table it is your choice but it is a terrible choice how privileged you and I are that at least you and I are at the stage where we know what the choices are the king has found us He's invited us. I did have a meeting with the Prime Minister. Sounds a bit vainglorious. But I was up in Townsville and I got a phone call to say, you are meeting with the Prime Minister the next, tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock in Sydney. All I had, because I was talking to teenagers, was, was casual clothes. I had to get a suit, had to get new shoes, shirt, tie, the works. 
because I couldn't go into the presence of the Prime Minister looking the way I was. And the appointment was for 10 o'clock. I was walking up and down the street outside his Sydney office by 8 o'clock in the morning. I flew down the night before. I wasn't risking a flight that could be held up by fog. I was going to be on time and I was on my best behaviour because it was a big moment in my life. And you and I have the invitation. We've got the knowledge that puts us so far ahead of the rest of the world. That should be absolutely life transforming. I should have run out in the street and said to all those people in the crowds, do you know what you're missing, the Lord Jesus Christ? They take me and lock me up. It's by being a loving and lovable Christian. But you know, what we have and what we've been promised is so wonderful. I want to ask you a question. It's not a rhetorical question. I want to hear your answers. What is the real purpose of God's plan of salvation? Somebody tell me. I have asked groups of ministers this question, Baron, and had them look at me stupefied. What? Yeah. Any answer is correct, by the way. So I, I accept them all. To make it how it used to be. To restore things to what it was. You know, that's one of the words that we use. Restoration, uh, salvation, uh, redeemer. They're actually Old Testament legal terms for land. That is why Christ continually talked about the kingdom of heaven. It is restoring the land that we lost when Adam and Eve were expelled. That is why restoring to, Beth, to, to Mephibosheth the land that had been his. That was a good answer. Somebody else. Hang on, you're too important. I'll come back to you. So... Yes, uh, particularly the last bit you said, Baron. The restoration of his character in front of the entire universe. It has been slandered. I cringe when I go into a shopping centre after school and I hear these kids sitting at the tables yelling out, oh my... Oh... Another reason. Yes. God's love. Father's love. Yeah, I wish I had to come a bit later. I'd like to have had a few answers first. <laughs> but you are so right. He misses us. If you think it broke Adam and Eve's heart the day they were pushed out of the garden, how do you think God felt that evening? Awful. He knew it was going to cost his son. He knew that his people were to go through indescribable pain. We don't know what it is like to live in an environment of no pain, no death, no hunger, no nothing except happiness. I'll tell you what, my standing here trying to talk about the kingdom of heaven is like Two blowflies having a conversation about personal hygiene. We just don't know. We, 
It's just beyond us. He wants us to be restored to the way it was because he just loves our company. He wants us back. He misses us. He thinks about us every single day. And I believe that that is what the plan of salvation is all about. We don't deserve to be saved. It's just that he loves us. You talked about my grandchildren before. They can be very, very naughty. But they know that no matter what happens to them, we love them. And we would, we would give our lives up in an instant to save them. I want to finish with a poem that I uh, used here once before, but because there are a couple of themes in this poem that really come into the story of Mephibosheth, I'm going to say it again. I hope I can remember it. I have scratched some words down. It's a most unusual poem. It was written in 1915 by a man called Hubert Trench. And it doesn't even talk about God. But to me, it talks of this, this love that uh, just uh, human words cannot describe. And I'll finish on this poem. It's called Gene Richardson's Song. A young lad once and a lad so trim, a young lad once and a lad so trim, gave his love to her who loved not him. And says she, fetch me tonight, you rogue. And says she, fetch me tonight, you rogue, your mother's heart to feed my dog. To his mother's house went that young man. To his mother's house went that young man, killed her and took the heart and ran. And as he was running, look you, he fell. And as he was running, look you, he fell. And the heart rolled on the ground as well. And the heart was a-weeping and crying so small. And the heart was a-weeping and crying so small. Are you hurt, my child? Are you hurt at all? That's what grace is all about. If you have your Bible... Look up these beautiful words in Romans chapter 5. And I'll read a couple of verses before and after. This is what Paul wrote. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. He was actually referring to two Greek uh, figures, uh, Alcestis and Almetus, who were very good people. But then he goes on. But God demonstrates his love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are in awe of your love. We are in awe of your grace. We scarcely understand it. But you've taken us filthy and crippled. And you have taken us from no nothing. And you've invited us to stand in your presence and to eat at your table and to be your sons and daughters. What fools we would be 
to despise an invitation like that. We pray, dear Father, that we will grasp this opportunity. We may, our lives will be transformed. May we just shine before men. And we just thank you for your love, for your grace. And we say, Jesus, we love you. Amen. This message was made available by Fountain in the City. For more resources like this, visit fountaininthecity.com.au. And grace will
Phipps sang Amazing Grace. Up next, Reggie and Lady Love Smith will sing I Will Glory in the Cross.
We hope you enjoy this short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. William was in love with Jesus and set out to read his Bible again, sitting here in this room and starting in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. He made his way methodically through the Bible using his Cruden's Concordance. When he came across a word or a verse that he did not understand, he would cross-reference it until he came to a full understanding. He came to Daniel 8.14, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, and did not understand it. Rather than reading on, he stopped there, stayed there, studied it out, and his conclusions would have a far-reaching impact. The motivating factor in William's life was not a pursuit of head knowledge, but it was his love of Jesus. It was a deep love and a force that kept him going. As he continued his study of Daniel 8, he came to the conclusion that Jesus would come in about 25 years. As he studied and re-studied, he concluded in 1818 that Jesus would come around the year 1843. Yet despite having this great news, he did nothing about it, keeping it mainly to himself. He did tell a few friends, but did nothing publicly. He was worried that he would be made fun of and did not want to leave his hometown to speak. He did write some articles that were published, but as yet he had done no preaching. William struggled with the call to preach for 13 years. He heard in his mind over and over the words, go and tell the world. Finally, one day, he made a prayer of commitment that if he was asked to preach, then he would go. He felt this was a pretty safe fleece, for no one was going to ask a 50-year-old farmer to preach about the second coming. Not long after, his doorbell rang, and his nephew, Irvin Guilford, was there, and he asked him if he would come to Dresden to share the things that he had been studying. Rather than being thankful his prayer had been answered, he stormed out the door angrily. He walked out of his house and came to this maple grove here and paced up and down. His daughter Lucy followed him, and after watching a while, she went back inside and said, Mommy, something's wrong with Daddy. You see, something was wrong. He was under conviction and could not reason his way out of it. His nephew lived over half an hour away, which meant he left his house before Miller prayed the prayer of commitment, and he could thus see the moving of God in this situation. As the sign says, he went in a farmer and came out a preacher. After accepting the call to preach, Miller traveled extensively over the next 10 years across the northeastern parts of the United States with his prophecy charts and Bible with him. Many were converted, and the revival wasn't linked to a particular denomination. Although Miller was a Baptist, one estimate has him winning over 40,000 to the Baptist Church and over 40,000 to the Methodist Church. It was not long before he would meet up with Joshua V. Hines, 
thus extending his influence from the spoken word to the written word. Maybe God is calling you to the ministry to preach. Maybe you have been resisting his call like William did for 13 years. I want to assure you that the best place to be is safe in the peace that you are not resisting the Holy Spirit and that you're following God's will for your life. If God is calling you, then step out in faith and let him lead. To view more episodes in this series, visit lineagejourney.com. tip lady who loves to share tips to help make your life more simple and hopeful. Is your life a mad race to who knows where? Then you're going to love my two tips today. Fires, smoke, burned landscapes, dry barren paddocks have formed the background to our life in the Aussie bush for quite a few months. But while walking on the side of a barren dusty road recently I just had to stop look and listen. Who remembers being told to do that at school umpteen years ago? Stop, look and listen. Weren't we all taught that? Yes. Well, I did just that while walking along this dreary, dust-filled and smoky road. Suddenly, the sound of dry, crisp leaves rustling in the breeze made me stop. The sound was music to my ears. I just had to stop, look and listen and enjoy the gentle sound of nature quietly and unassumingly living its life. Somehow, even in those dreary surroundings, that tree gained enough nourishment to live and move and bless the passers-by. The person who needed to not only see but hear nature happily at work with its leaves rustling in the breeze. So I'm thinking today, stop, look and listen more. Listen for the simple things around you because nature will nurture our parched spirits and bring refreshment, even when our surroundings are dreary, if we let it. So here is tip number one, and it comes with a guarantee that will simplify your life. Here it is. Take time to stop, look and listen. In 2 Peter 3, 13, in God's word, he says, We, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Even when our circumstances are less than ideal, and we're not in heaven yet, we all know that, there are things all around us that will brighten our journey to heaven if we stop, look, and listen. Yes, listen too. And here's tip number two. Take time to visualise eternal realities. What do I mean? Look beyond our dreary circumstances, stop rushing madly sometimes during the day, and look at some of the wonderful promises that God's Word is full of about a world where there will be no sickness, no sadness, no tears, and listen to the voice of God speaking to your heart. If you will action these two tips today, your life will become more simple and hopeful, guaranteed. 
That's it from the two-tip lady who loves to help make your life more simple. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.